Good morning. I will be reading uh, from Genesis for, uh, chapter 49 and 50. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their fury, so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend toward Sidon. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down among the sheep pens. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider tumbles backwards. I look for your deliverance, Lord. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a, fu a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. But his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, blessings of the breast and womb. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey. In the evening he divides the plunder. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Then he gave them these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Mach 
Machpelah, near Mamre and Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Chapter 50. Coming right up. My iPad is thinking. thinking hard there we go chapter 50 thank you sorry then joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him and joseph commanded his servants the physicians to embalm his father so the physicians embalmed israel 40 days were required for it for that is how many are required for embalming and the egyptians wept for him 70 days and when the days of weeping for him were past Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all of the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Marazim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Mature, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Well, one of the most perplexing, difficult, often painful, through experience questions we have for God is how he allows such pain and suffering in the world, right? Randy Alcorn in his book, If God is Good, describes the sovereignty of God as the biblical teaching that all things remain under God's rule and nothing happens without either his direction or permission. God works in all things for the good of his children. These all things include evil and suffering. God doesn't commit moral evil, but he can use any evil for good purposes. So if God is sovereign and loving, why do babies die stillborn? If God is sovereign and loving, why are children born with deformities and illnesses? If God is sovereign and loving, why are there starving people, people starving to death? If God is sovereign and loving, why is there so much violence and war? If God is sovereign and loving, why are marriages ending? Why are debilitating and life-ending diseases striking people down at a young age or at a perplexing time? These aren't questions asked from the sidelines of life. These are questions asked on the playing field of suffering. And it's with these sorts of questions circulating that we conclude our series, Joseph and the Gospel of Many Colors. We conclude it where Joseph says, a man who has suffered, who was sold into slavery, was a slave in Egypt, was wrongfully accused and imprisoned and forgotten for years and then was raised up to power in time to manage a nation through a horrific famine that devastatingly affected surrounding nations as well. And yet here's a man that at the end of all of that says, God meant it for good. He's actually not addressing these kinds of questions that we ask people inside and out of the church ask, but he's experienced the pain and the sufferings of, of the realities of life in a fallen world and yet concludes God meant it for good. Therefore, Joseph and God's word this morning, God ultimately with his sovereign purposes wants to address this question for us this morning. First, we'll look at chapter 49, which I've entitled Finest Hour, Blessed to be a Blessing. And then we'll look at chapter 50, the two wills at work, evil and good. And we'll look at that in three ways. First, we'll look at that by the sovereignty of God, uh, that it works ultimate good out of evil. The sovereignty of God works ultimate good out of evil. Secondly, because God is sovereign, we should not waste our suffering. And third, God is both sovereign and suffering. 
and therefore caring and trustworthy. But let's look at chapter 49 first. And, and as we do, let's pray as we, as we spend time reflecting on God's word read to us. And now we'll look at it together. Father, thank you for your word. Um, I thank you, Lord, for the difficult texts because they're really only difficult and grindy when it's starting to address um, ways in which it's hard for our hearts and heads to wrap around some of these ideas because they matter, because we, um, we care deeply about them. They affect us and others so much. So God, we address this morning one of these difficult passages because we have many preconceived notions around this. Lord, I pray that your word would, um, would win the day, that you would find us faithful even in difficulty. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, chapter 49 is, is Jacob's finest hour. Jacob has, was not a really great son. He was a deceitful son. He stole his brother's blessing. Uh, he was not a great husband. He married, well, he's tricked into marrying Leah, and, but didn't love her. And, and then married Rachel, a wife he really loved. And just, just was not a great husband. And, and then he was a father who played favorites. I mean, this is, in, in really every category of Jacob's life, he was not great at it. Um... And this truly is, on his deathbed in chapter 49 of Genesis, his finest hour, where on his deathbed, leaning over his staff, he blesses his sons. Half the chapter is spent blessing two of those sons, Judah and Joseph. You know what's so powerful about this blessing on Judah, this transformation on Judah, is that Judah is the youngest son of Leah, the rejected wife. She was unlovely, the Hebrew would say. She she was an unlovely woman. Jacob found her not attractive. He was not drawn to her, right? She felt rejected her whole life by her dad, right? And and, and Laban, he, 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 he tricks Jacob into marrying her, and she feels that. And then Jacob does not love her. But then Leah becomes pregnant before Rachel, and thinks, ah, oh, he'll love me now. And she, she gives birth to a son. And she's so, so hopeful that Jacob will love her now. But he doesn't. And she has a second son, son, a third son. Jacob still does not love this woman, Leah. She has felt rejected by every person that mattered in her world. But then Judah is born, her fourth son, and you know what? She, she names him Judah, and it means, I will praise the Lord. See, when Judah was born, her, Leah's heart changed. I'm done trying to please Judah, I'm, I'm, or Jacob. I'm done trying to please my husband and please my dad. These men have rejected me. This time, with this son, I will simply praise the Lord for this child. And she worships God. Wouldn't you know Judah is this man who is raised up? Who will, David will come from the line of Judah. Jesus will come from the line of Judah. You know who comes, you know, Jesus Christ as he enters the world. You know who's in the family line? Leah is. 
Have you ever felt like a rejected man or a rejected woman? Have you felt that you haven't received the love from people that you have longed to receive the love from? Leah was that person. And yet God brings his son Jesus through the line of Leah that she will be so honored. Leah's heart came alive to a living God who loved her more than any kind of love she could ever want. And as she did, God promises, and and Jacob actually utters the promise that all of these things will happen through Judah. It says in, in, in chapter 49, verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff, until tribute comes to him. Do you know how that tribute truly came to Judah? Jesus Christ. Through the line of Judah. This is a powerful thing. Jacob finally gets it, gets it right and it's at his deathbed. And then he pours a blessing over Joseph, a man who was so wronged and he addresses it. The archers bitterly attacked you, it says in verse 23, and shot at him and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Meaning, Joseph, you have suffered so many things, but you have persevered because God's hand has been on you. And I, I, Jacob finally gets it right and pours a blessing over this son, Joseph. Do you know that in Hebrews 11 where there is the, this um, the hall of faith, right, talking about all of these Old Testament patriarchs and, and, and significant characters, and it starts to list what really made them men of faith and women of faith. And we, we think, oh, you know, it was this or it was that or, you know, all these things that, that made them. You know what made Jacob a man of faith? It says in chapter 11, verse 21, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Really what it, what's attributed to faith to, uh, uh, in, for Jacob is the fact that he blessed Joseph's sons and his own sons. Eric Mason said in Manhood Restored, How the Gospel Makes Men Whole, said one of the most powerful passages illustrative of the link between the identity of sons and their fathers is found in Genesis 49. In this chapter, Jacob calls his sons to him. He then proceeds to speak into the lives of those young men, helping them understand their true identity. Such a charge would have secured his sons and who they were It was a way of establishing their identity and charging them with responsibility. And then in verse 28, marks the conclusion of this blessing. These are the tribes of Israel, 12 in all, and this was what their father said to them. He blessed them, and he blessed each one of them with a suitable blessing. Literally, the Hebrew here is, and he blessed them, each of whom, according to his blessing, he blessed them. In other words, the blessing properly matched the son. Jacob, though, losing strength and losing sight near death, saw more clearly in that moment than he ever had before. And he spoke of the promises and blessings God had for them individually who would become tribes and as a nation. His final hour was his finest hour. He blessed his boys. 
I have a nighttime routine. I'm sure many of you younger parents have this routine of putting your kids to bed. And our routine is, is, is it's, it's extreme. There are many, many things that have to happen. You know, it's a certain, they get to watch a show. They get to have a snack and a little, you know, juice really watered down. Or, yeah, juice. Uh, and they get to, uh, you know, and after that, you know, go up, brush teeth, go to the washroom, and then, you know, I, I always tell a story, and, and, and it's this routine. We start at 2 o'clock. We start the, bed, we start the bedtime routine at 2 o'clock, essentially. And uh, finally, I, just since Boston's been really, really little, I, I don't know why, I just say to him every night, okay, all of this has happened. The bedtime routine is done. Now I'm going to pray for you and sing you a song. And uh, that's just been the nightly routine. And one night, a few uh, months ago, Boston looked up at me, Dad, why do you sing me a song? Oh, oh, do you you not like it that I sing you a song? And he looked back at me and said, Daddy, I always love that you sing me a song. You know what? I think that's the most important part of my day. I'm preaching to all of you this morning. I think the most important important part of my day is tonight when I say to Boston, I'm going to put you to bed. I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to sing you a song. Pray for him. Pray for Walker, right? God would draw them to himself. And it's a scary prayer to pray, but God, however you will, use them for your glory. That's a scary prayer. Make these mighty men of God. And just sing a blessing over them, right? I think that's the heart of being a dad. Jacob gets it right here. He shows them the promises of God. He points them to what God wants to work in them, points them to promises, points them to blessings, points them to all that truly matters in this world, makes it really clear. And there's even a lot of grace in that, by the way, too. You know, Levi is a guy who, um, I don't want to get into the long story, but Simeon and Levi murdered a bunch of guys. And so they're getting a pretty rough blessing. It's almost an anti-blessing here. But do you know who the, do you know who the priests are going to be in the nation of Israel? The tribe of Levi. I mean, there's grace. It's grace-saturated word here. Blessing here, despite their sin. God blesses. See, Israel was, starting at the very beginning of the tribes, blessed to be a blessing to the world. God reconciles everyone who comes to Christ to himself and then trusts us, entrusts us with his ministry of reconciliation to a broken, sin-ravaged world in need of reconciliation in every category. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says this clearly, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal Through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you not see that we, ourselves, through Christ, are blessed to be a blessing? And that truly is the prayer I have for my sons. It's truly the prayer I have for our church. That we would not be blessed to hoard it. That we would not be blessed and think well of ourselves. That we would not be blessed in such a way that we think, 
we've got it together, we are good, but we would be blessed to let it shine to a broken world around us. That's what God has called us to. Is that how we're living? Are we, do we recognize that the blessings we receive are meant to be poured out on others? Jacob received such blessing from God, and on his deathbed he poured those blessings into his sons, that those 12 tribes would be a blessing to nations. I mean, it starts with a blessing that God has on one man, and then it begins to trickle out. And Jesus Christ died so that you could have life, and in doing that, he saved sinners, and as he saves sinners, he gives us the message of reconciliation. That's why the church matters. A beacon of hope in a broken world. That we shine as a light. That we don't put it under a bowl. We have been blessed to be a blessing. It is the most important ministry we have on this earth. But now we need to really get into chapter 50 because it is a doozy. Two wills at work, evil and good. Gerhard Van Rod said, the statement about the brothers' evil plans and God's good plans now opens up the inmost mystery of the Joseph story. It's in every respect the climax to the whole. Even where no man could imagine it, God had all the strings in his hand. Firstly, the sovereignty of God works ultimate good out of evil. Joseph's brothers successfully did evil. Evil thoughts, jealousy, hate, they wanted to kill him. But it wasn't just thought, they did wrong. They threw him in a pit and they sold him into slavery. So Joseph's brothers successfully did evil. And God successfully brought about good from their evil. Notice it does not say that God used their evil for good. After they meant it for evil, God did not shoot. There's lemons here. I'm going to make lemonade somehow and quickly come up with a plan. It says that in the very act of evil, there were two different designs. In the sinful act, they were designing, the brothers were designing evil. And in the same sinful act, God was designing good. This is what we have seen and will see over and over. What man designs or the devil designs for evil, God designs for some great good. The great good mentioned in Genesis 45.5 is to preserve life. And the great good mentioned in Genesis 50:20 is to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. One act, two wills, two designs. Wayne Grudem notes, we must never come to the point where we think that we are not responsible for the evil that we do or that God takes pleasure in evil or is to be blamed for it. Such a conclusion is clearly contrary to Scripture. So here we have a combination of evil deeds brought about by sinful men who are rightly held accountable for their sin and the overriding providential control of God whereby God's own purposes were accomplished. Both are clearly affirmed. We should not mix the two. When Joseph, when confronted with the brothers that had thrown him into a pit and sold him into slavery, had forgiveness to extend and God's sovereign perspective to share with them. Look at what Joseph, the one who received such actions against himself in chapter 45 verse 5 said, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. 
And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep you alive for many survivors, to keep a, to, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And in chapter 50, verse 19, do not fear. Why are they not to fear? For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. And nothing about God's sovereign work in Joseph's life suggests that God works differently in the lives of his other children. Though the events in our lives don't have the same historical prominence, I'm pretty sure, God didn't act out of character with Joseph. It wasn't a one-off. This is how God acts. God reveals to us in this text how he sovereignly works in all our lives as well. But we, we, we question this biblical truth. We really question it. And so I'd like to talk to you about a very, very tiny bug to paint a picture about our questioning, and it's called noceums. Are you familiar with noceums? Or sandflies, or midges, or whatever? Tim Keller talks about them in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Noceums have a painful bite, but are so small that you noceum. them. So just because you can't see noceums doesn't mean they're not there. If you're camping and you look at your tent and you see a St. Bernard in there, or, you, or sorry, you don't see a St. Bernard in your tent, it's fair to assume there's no St. Bernard in there. But if you look in your tent and you don't see any noceums, on the other hand, it doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't any. So are God's reasons, if any. Are they for permitting evil? Are they more like St. Bernard's or noceums? Tim Keller concludes, if you have a God infinite and powerful enough for you to be angry at for allowing evil, then you must at the same time have a God infinite enough to, be sufficient, to have sufficient reasons for allowing that evil. Listen to that again. If you have a God infinite and powerful enough for you to be angry at for allowing evil, then you must at the same time have a God infinite enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing that evil. See, we look in the tent and say, I don't see the noceums. There must not be any. I don't see the reasons for pain and suffering. Therefore, we conclude there must not be any good reasons. And so we blame God. If you're powerful enough to stop it, why aren't you? And we, we, we claim him to be. We say, God, you could have stopped this. We blame him because we look and we say, I don't see a good reason for this. And so we blame a God powerful enough to stop it. But we stop there. If we follow that train of thought, is this God who is so powerful to stop any suffering at any time, is he not infinite? Is he not omniscient enough? Is he not powerful enough to have reasons that we just don't understand? You see, the belief that because we cannot think of something, God cannot think of it either, is more than a fallacy. It is a mark of great pride and faith in one's own mind above that of above that of the omniscient, all-knowing God. Isaiah 55, verse 8, rings in my ears, right? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. But we don't, we don't like that. We reason with God at this level. I don't see a good reason, therefore omniscient God, there is not one. Do you hear the pride in that? 
And yet this isn't just some theological debate or discussion, right? We're, we're on the playing field of suffering and it hurts. And I, I, I don't minimize that for a second. We often don't see the reasons for pain and suffering, but that doesn't mean there aren't any. John Piper is a pastor, a writer I've, I've appreciated for many years, and I, I read something that he, he spoke um, a few years ago at his granddaughter's funeral. She was born stillborn, stillborn full term on September 22, 2007. And his son, who was the father of this little girl, asked him to share five minutes on being her granddaddy. And I cried just reading this in my office, so this is going to be a mess. <laughs> but I want you to hear something of God's higher ways, God's higher thoughts. Being Felicity's grandfather, John Piper said, means that I have felt her loss through her uncles. My sons, Karsten, Benjamin, and Barnabas, I broke the news to each of you and watched all of your plans change. You are good brothers to each other, and I cannot tell you how much I love the tears and embraces of strong men. Being Felicity's grandfather means that I have felt her loss through her grandmother, my wife, Noelle. Strange and wonderful. Your tears came slowly and have increased. Mine came quickly and have decreased. Almost the story of our lives. Thank you for knitting Felicity's blanket. And, oh, man. <laughs> and weeping as you decided to give it to her anyways. Being Felicity's grandfather means that I have felt the loss through her mother, my daughter-in-law, Molly. For her entire life, she depended on you more than anyone. You fed her. You cleansed her. You supported her. You protected her. You knew her better than anyone. The grace that God has given you to love her greatly and let her go is amazing. Christ is on display in your life. Being Felicity's grandfather means that I have felt her loss, the loss through her father, my son Abraham. The words from Saturday morning's phone call are cut into my heart. Daddy, we lost the baby. Nothing, Abraham, has gone deeper inside of me than your loss. Being Felicity's grandfather means that I have felt the loss through her great-grandfather, my father, Bill Piper. And this experience is totally different from all the others. In this case, the loss is all gain. My father died six months and 16 days before Felicity did. And I believe the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ covers the sins of all who trust in him and all who are not old enough to trust in him here, but will trust in him later. Therefore, I believe Felicity and her grand, great-grandfather met each other early Sunday morning in the presence of Christ. And my father said, perhaps, hello, Felicity. I'm your great-grandfather, Piper. Come. There is somebody I want you to meet. His name is Jesus. He's the reason you're here. You don't need to be afraid. Your Savior has led you all the way. And Jesus does all things well.
when Emily and I were, were, were newly married, we thought, you know, let's have a baby years down the road. <laughs> like, let's, wait, let's wait lots of years. And then she got pregnant a few months into our marriage. And, uh, and interestingly, we had not planned that, and yet our hearts so warmed to that. God had given us a baby. This must be his plan. And we went for the first ultrasound. And they make the dad wait, right? You wait in a separate room these days. And um, the ultrasound technician came and, and, and got me, and I, I walked into the room and instantly knew there was a problem. This little life that was in her belly that we weren't expecting, that we had not yet wanted, really, was gone. Yet our hearts had so warmed, we were so excited, we thought, this is great. And you just wonder, why, like, what, what was the purpose of that? And people uh, aiming to bring comfort. I remember one woman said to Emily, you know, God didn't do this. This isn't God. And, and really, that's, that's probably the least <laughs> comforting thing that you could be told. Matthew 10.29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Birds fall to the ground dead at God's bidding. Everything happens under God's sovereign rule. You know what's comforting? Knowing that God sovereignly willed that little life to not uh, see the light of day, but that God has ultimate good in that, that God is actually working in and through that, I can rest in that. C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. This is the final defeat of evil and suffering. Not only will it one day come to a complete end, but will be so triumphed over that our future life and joy will only be greater in light of it. I believe that. I trust that. That's perplexing. It's a paradox. How can a loving God allow such suffering? And yet there's these promises that heaven, when attained, eternity, when revealed, will work everything backwards that we are better for the sufferings. Romans 8.28 declares this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. B.B. Warfield was a world-renowned theologian who taught at Princeton Seminary for over 30 years. He married Annie Kincaid in 1876 and went to Germany on their honeymoon. They were caught in an intense storm there, and Annie was struck by lightning, leaving her permanently paralyzed for the rest of her life. This young couple, I believe he was 25, they went on their honeymoon in Germany. His wife is struck by lightning and is paralyzed for the rest of her life. For the next 39 years until she died in 1915, Warfield rarely spent more than two hours at a time away from home as he both worked as a world-class theologian and tended to his wife. But Warfield, when reflecting on Romans 8.28, wrote, the fundamental thought is 
the universal government of God. All that comes to you is under his controlling hand. The secondary thought is the favor of God to those that love him. If he governs all, so if he governs all, then nothing but good can befall those to whom he would do good. Though we are too weak and too uh, though we are too weak to help ourselves and too blind to ask for what we need and can only groan in unformed longings, he is the author in us of these very longings. And he will so govern all things that we shall reap only good from all that befalls us. B.B. Warfield is referring to Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for our good. Only good from all Warfield's response was an emphatic yes to the loving sovereignty of God, and he earned the right to do so in the school of suffering. See, the sovereignty of God works ultimate good out of evil. Secondly, God, uh, because God is sovereign, we should not waste our suffering. Joseph's suffering was not wasted because he entrusted his life to the all-sufficient plans of his sovereign Lord, and by embracing his hardships as divine appointments, he was able to to be used to save nations, forgive his brothers, see his family reconciled, and God's covenant purposes furthered. Alexander, oh man, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, that's a good Russian name, wrote the Gulag Archipelago. Um, he, uh, he wrote some things, he's from Russia, wrote things about uh, the Russian government at the time that put him in the Gulag work prisons. But this is what he wrote about his experience in prison. It was granted to me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load, this this essential experience, how a human being becomes evil and how good. In the the intoxication of youthful successes, I had felt myself to be infallible. And I was therefore cruel. In the surfeit of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good and I was well supplied with systematic arguments. It was only when I lay there on a rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. That is why I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say sometimes to the astonishment of those about me, bless you, prison. I have served enough time there. I have nourished my soul there. And I say without hesitation, bless you, prison, for having been in my life. What a strange thing to say about years in a horrific work camp prison. But I believe that Joseph went through his years of being forgotten in prison much the same way. That God was refining him, proving himself to be using it, and that Joseph could rest in the sovereignty of God. I'm going to suggest two ways in which we we can keep from wasting our suffering. First, we either run from God or heap our dependence on him like never before. And second, we can suffer like this world is all there is or suffer in such a way that testifies of God's sovereignty and goodness. First, we either run from God or heap our dependence on him like never before. Charles Spurgeon said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you rest your head. I love that. Don't reel against the sovereignty of God. Let it be the pillow you rest on as you walk through suffering. 
Vicki Anderson was born with hypertolerism, a facial abnormality. It's very uh, noticeable on, on people's face who have this abnormality. She said, though, I don't like the phrase birth defect. It contradicts my theology. A defect implies a mistake, and I believe that God is sovereign. If he had the power to create the entire universe according to his exact specifications, then my face was certainly no challenge for him. If God is loving, why did he deform my face? I don't know. Maybe because with a normal face, I would have been robbed of the thousands and thousands of blessings that I have received because of my deformities. It seems odd, but usually our greatest trial is what most moves and shapes us. It gives us character, backbone, courage, wisdom, discernment, and friendships that are not shallow. What a response. Her mother wrote, I believe that God chose this sorrow for our family, and surprisingly, what at first felt as sorrow, I I now see as a joy. In all sincerity, if given such a chance, I would not change the journey our family has traveled. We have all learned, we have all grown, and we love the Lord and his sovereign direction in our lives. Hebrews 12:11 says for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness that to those who have been trained by it. That is good. Secondly, very very quickly, we can suffer like this world is all there is or suffer in such a way that testifies of God's sovereignty and goodness. See, deep in our souls, there's this stirring that says is every, everything, every evil and suffering that we see around us, we just, everything in us declares this is not right. And it isn't. It's, it's, a, it's the realities of a sin-ravaged world. But the truth is that this is not all there is. We want this to be made right, and that's why we are made ministers of reconciliation to make earth look more like heaven. Christians are sent out to do just that. And yet heaven is coming, eternity is coming, where everything will be made right, where that agony, where that angst, where that pain over suffering and evil in the world, where we want that righted, there is the promise that says it will be. It has been triumphed on the cross, and when Christ returns, all things will be made new, be made right. Samuel Rutherford wrote, Our little time of suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. Romans 5.3 says, We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Well, how in the world do we get hope? How in the world do we get faith? Well, he brings it and draws it out. How? Through suffering. It's God's means that we grow as his children. Many of you will remember the Amish community shooting in 2006 when a gunman took hostages in a one-room schoolhouse in the Amish uh, community of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. When it was all over, the gunman had shot 10 victims, five of whom died and were between the ages of 7 and 13. And then he killed himself. And within hours of this tragedy, members of the Amish community visited the killer's parents expressing sympathy for their loss and support for the hard times ahead. At the gunman's funeral, his widow, along with her three children, were amazed to see that half of those attending were Amish, there to show support for the murderer's family. The forgiveness and love shown by the Amish community was on display to the whole country and world. The way in which they handled their suffering was a powerful testimony to the grace of God to that watching world. 
But how in the world were they able to do it? Some scholars wrote a book about the tragedy entitled Amish Grace and concluded that their ability to forgive was based on two things. First, it was grounded in deep reflection and meditation on Christ, forgiving his tormentors and killers. Meaning at the heart of our faith is a man who died for his enemies. We sing about it. We speak about it. We celebrate it constantly. Therefore, the practice of forgiving even the murderers of children will not seem impossible. I don't mean to say it's easy. Secondly, at its heart, forgiveness is a form of self-renunciation. This is a hard one for us. It means giving up your right to pay back. We share an Anabaptist tradition with the Amish, by the way. We're Anabaptists along with them. We, just, we differ on the, the uh, it's called the doctrine of electronics. It's a very... Um, they'd be conservatives, I'm extremely liberal. When it comes to the doctrine of electronics, I'm liberal. As Christians, we are called to give up our individual interests for the sake of Christ and others. It is giving up our own freedoms in order to live according to God's will and to the benefit of neighbor, from slaves to sin to slaves of Christ. We share that same tradition with the Amish. At its heart, forgiveness is a form of self-renunciation. But the truth of the matter is that in our society today, it's not self-renunciation that we are taught, but self-assertion. My freedoms, my interests, my needs above all others. But a self-asserting culture produces revenge as a response. Whereas the self-renunciating culture of the Amish produced a response of forgiveness. The scholars in this book... Amish Grace concluded, most of us have therefore been formed by a culture that nourishes revenge and mocks grace. And the culture has informed us more than the scriptures. But do you know what one of the greatest testimonies of all is? Peace, love, and forgiveness in the face of suffering, whether by you, the Amish, or Jesus himself. None of life is insignificant or accidental or wasted when lived under the purposeful hand of our loving Heavenly Father. Realizing that our lives operate under our Heavenly Father's providential care works wonders when the bottom drops out again and again and again. Don't waste your suffering. For the soul-satisfying peace it yields in your own life and for the effective kingdom ministry to others through it. Lastly, God is both sovereign and suffering and therefore caring and trustworthy. I had a lot to say about this, but I have negative eight minutes to do it. Joseph was in in faithful obedience to his father, was approaching his brothers in love when they betrayed him and sold him for pieces of silver. He was wrongfully accused and captured and paid the penalty just for the unjust in chapter 42:21 the brothers said about Joseph we saw his distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen and then he was raised up to the right hand of the most powerful person in the world pharaoh and god ordained all of it to take place and in jesus christ god ordained that he should die Jesus hung on the cross just for the unjust and cried out to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is anguish in that. God the Son suffered on the cross and God the Father suffered as um, 
God's sovereign will accomplish the most ultimate good from the most evil act. The greatest act of suffering that's ever taken place in the world was the just Savior on the cross for the unjust humanity who put him there. And that suffering was most felt by God the Father and God the Son. And we wave our fists at God saying, you know nothing of this suffering, why would you not stop it? And yet the reality is, he knows far more than we do about suffering. And he came to suffer so that we could have heaven, so that all wrongs could be made right, that we could reign with him. And then God raised up Jesus to reign with him at his right hand. Joseph is just a shadow of our Savior. And as we've walked through this series on Joseph and the gospel of many colors, I love how the gospel is woven in and through it, don't you? Is it not amazing that God orchestrated all of this sovereignly so that we could be saved? It's his work. I plead with you to believe it. I ask that you would rest in the comfort that our Savior knows suffering. Will you rest in the truth that every evil will be made right, that the sovereign purposes of God, including your hurts, pains, and tragedies, and heartbreaks, have purpose? They all do, and he will work them all for ultimate good. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray you'd forgive me for bringing two hours worth of notes up here this morning. And, uh, recognize I am incapable of doing any justice to a beautiful doctrine. I praise you, God, for it. That in the midst of suffering, I have truly felt your sovereign hand, the recognition that we can fall on your sovereignty like a pillow and rest in the midst of all the hardships surrounding us. God, you are good. Oh, Lord, you know suffering more than we ever will. I praise you for that, that you are a God that sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. You are a God who says that you bring good out of suffering and you have proved it on the cross. That where the anguish of Christ bearing our sin on his shoulders, God. You brought salvation through pain and agony and evil praise you God for that that we can praise you that you receive sinners like us who contributes to making this world a place full of sin and evils and wrongs and sufferings and yet you beckon us to come bringing forgiveness thank you Lord I pray that this doctrine would richly impact our hearts and lives and as we respond with the song God, I pray that you would meet us here and impress these things deep into our souls for your glory and our good. Amen.